Them, I'm a fan, them, and that's all gone. Can't catch one double double that CKUT that CA. Radio Show, a part of CKUT's Off the Hour. Prison Radio has been on the air for more than 10 years. 
Prison Radio seeks to confront the invisibility of prisons and prisoner struggle by focusing on the roots of incarceration, policing, and criminalization, and by challenging our ideas about what are prisons and the people inside our jails. Prison Radio is dedicated to programming that is directly collaborative with people who are currently incarcerated. This is in the interest of forging stronger ties with incarcerated and non-incarcerated people, ensuring that prisoners have direct control over their representation and that our understanding of prisons be informed by those who live inside their walls. We invite anyone who is interested in collaborating on programming to contact us. Those who have been affected by the prison system in any way are encouraged to get involved. You can email news at cqt.ca or prison at cqt.ca or you can call us at 514-448-4041 extension 6788. You're listening to CQT Montreal Community Campus Radio located on 90.3 FM on the dial and www.cqt.ca online. You are listening to The Prison Radio Show. My name is Candace. My name is Noah. And we'll be your hosts for today. Today on the show, we will be hearing a pre-recorded interview with Joanne and Laura from Joint Effort. Joint Effort is a women in prison abolitionist group involved in solidarity work with women prisoners in the lower mainland BC. Today, we will also hear audio from an event that took place in Montreal on the 29th of May. But first, some news. On May 21st of this year, Kevin Johnson, a jailhouse lawyer, author, and member of the New African Black Panther Party prison chapter, was retaliated against for speaking up on behalf of a mentally ill prisoner named Murphy who was being brutalized by corrections officers at the Santa Rosa Correctional Institution. As Florida Department of Corrections officers were gassing and assaulting Mr. Murphy for making too much noise, Mr. Johnson raised his voice from inside his solitary confinement cell in order to be heard on the video and audio recorders on the cell block, and said that the prison guards had been abusing Murphy by failing to provide him with needed mental health care, by withholding meals, and by responding to his mental health needs with violence. As punishment for speaking up, Mr. Johnson has had his property stolen by prison guards, his legal mail opened and read by prison administration, and has been threatened and sprayed with tear gas. Mr. Johnson's supporters are asking that people call the warden at Santa Rosa, the general counsel of the Florida Department of Corrections, and others. Check out RashidMod.com for more details. In Ottawa, the Canadian Parliament is debating, debating a new bill on mandatory minimum sentencing. Bill S-251 was tabled by NDP MP Cherie Benson for Saskatoon West and was drafted in collaboration with two high school students from her jurisdiction. The bill seeks to restore the independence of the judiciary by allowing trial judges to deviate from mandatory minimum sentences. 
the bill will give judges greater discretion in sentencing as long as they provide valid reasoning. The bill was created partly in response to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's call to action number 32, which calls upon the federal government to amend the criminal code to allow judges, upon giving reasons, to depart from mandatory minimum sentences and restrictions on the use of conditional sentences. During the second reading of the bill this past Tuesday, Senator Kim Pate delivered a speech that outlined many reasons to move away from mandatory minimum sentencing. Some of the reasons from her speech include mandatory minimum sentences do not deter crime, they do not serve the interests of victims, they undermine legal certainty and the rule of law by encouraging wrongful guilty pleas, and they carry enormous and needless financial costs. They discriminate against those who are marginalized and result in a less fair and just society for all, said Senator Kim Pate this week in Parliament. Also, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's call to action number 32 recognizes mandatory minimum penalties as a primary contributor to the overrepresentation of Indigenous peoples in prisons. In other news relating to the colonial Canadian state and the many Indigenous nations upon which it claims jurisdiction, yesterday the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that Canada's prison systems have failed to ensure that its risk assessment tools are not racially biased against Indigenous prisoners. Correctional Service Canada uses risk assessment tools as the basis for its decisions about individuals' conditions of confinement, programs, and services. The current flawed classification process has resulted in a federal prison system in which half of all women in segregated conditions are Indigenous. In the case Ewart v. The Queen, the Supreme Court noted that overtly racist attitudes or culturally inappropriate practices extend to all parts of the criminal justice system, including the prison system, quote-unquote. The Supreme Court of Canada concluded that Correctional Services Canada places Indigenous prisoners in, quote, clear danger of systemic discrimination. The New Brunswick Auditor General released its 2018 report this Tuesday as well, and in it they describe the provincial prison system as archaic and unacceptable, especially in matters relating to the treatment of prisoners requiring addiction or mental health care. In the report, the New Brunswick Auditor General Kim McPherson found that jails are not offering any addiction treatment or therapy for prisoners. Further, people in jail are often denied prescribed medications. According to the CBC, McPherson was shocked to learn that people in jail lose access to addiction and mental health treatment behind bars, often making them sicker upon release. Everyone who is serving time in a New Brunswick jail at this time, approximately 500 people, will be back out in the community in two years or less. The most common reasons for incarceration in provincial prisons are minor theft under 5,000 or breaching a court order or conditional sentence. In some cases, McPherson found people thrown into segregation for months without mental health support. Simple transfers between jails often disrupt any treatment or services people may have been receiving. Further, officials are not tracking uh, drug overdoses in jails. There's uh, poor records keeping, and it means there are no numbers on how many provincial prisoners may have uh, schizophrenia, for example. The Auditor General report also suggested the problems with the system have a financial toll. It costs about $66,000 to house one person in jail for a year. McPherson is calling for clear guidelines that spell out who is responsible for providing treatment to inmates and a plan for how to integrate services offered by different government departments. The government has also formed a committee to develop comprehensive solutions to the Auditor General's findings, which will eventually issue a report in June of next year. Toronto police shot and killed a man in the city's east end in the early morning of June 7th. 
According to unconfirmed police reports, officers responded just before midnight to calls regarding a person with a gun on Hymas Road in the Eglinton Avenue East area of Toronto. Police alleged that when officers arrived on scene, one of the officers had an interaction and shots were fired. A person was taken to a hospital trauma center, but was pronounced dead there. Police allege an officer was injured in the interaction. According to the blog Killer Cops, the Toronto Police Association wasted no time in turning the killing by their members into a call for more police officers in the city and blamed the event on, quote, understaffing. Police Chief Saunders said that the Toronto Police are looking to hire 200 new staff members by the end of this summer. In another report by Killer Cops blog, on Monday, June 11th, trial began for Killer Cop Patrick Ouellette of the Provincial Police Force the Sûreté de Québec in the death of five-year-old Nicholas Thorne-Balance in 2014. Officer Ouellette is charged with one count of dangerous driving causing death in the case. Thorne-Balance was a passenger in his father's car when it was struck by an unmarked police cruiser driven by Ouellette. The Ouellette's vehicle was traveling at more than 120 kilometers per hour in a 50 zone in the Longueuil borough of Saint-Sebar, south of Montreal, when he hit the vehicle the five-year-old was in. So the trial is scheduled to last two weeks. The blog Killer Cops Canada documents killings of people by police at all levels in Canada, and where possible, it also documents the officers responsible, police accounts of their killings, and public and or legal responses or lack of responses to killings by Canadian police. For more information or for further reports of the murderous actions of the police, you can visit killercopscanada.wordpress.com. Next up on the show, we have an interview with two members of the group Joint Effort, which is a women's prison abolitionist group based in BC. In the interview, Laura and Joanne talk to us about what the group is, as well as some recent challenges the group is facing. Joanne, do you want to introduce yourself for our listeners? <clears throat> yes, sir. Um, my name is Joanne Wendy Barito. Um, I'm a life se- I had a life sentence of uh, 10 years, well, eligibility to parole in 10 years, which is 2020. I started my sentence in Quebec, uh, the Joliet Institution for Women, and transferred out to Fraser Valley Institution uh, in September 2016. Um, I did my two years in the Mexican security as per uh, C, uh, as per uh, commissionary director, anybody that's serving life sentence uh, has to do two years in maximum. And then I spent uh, the next four years on a medium, medium, um, sorry, medium minimum um, grounds at Joliet, and then, tra- like I said, transferred to SVI. And I've been doing advocacy with uh, inmates um, inside the walls since. I left Max, which is 2012. I'm continuing on the outs. And Laura, would you like to introduce yourself for our listeners? Yeah, my name's Laura McElhenney, and um, I work and play and do support work on Coast Salish territory here in Vancouver, BC, the nations of the Squamish, Lillitus, and Musqueam nations um, are the indigenous and unceded territories here. And um, I've been doing support work with uh, joint effort um, and women inside since uh, 1999. Um, And, uh, yeah, and, you know, um, going into the prisons at Burnaby Correctional Center for Women, um, Alouette Correctional Center for Women, 
and Fraser Valley Institution for Women. And, um, yeah, just learning about, you know, what it is to be an ally, what it is to do things in a respectful way in a, in a uh, you know, prison and justice system and, um, and, you know, how to, you know, build alternatives to incarceration uh, with the resources that our, our community has. And you're both coming to us as part of a group that is called Joint Effort. Uh, does one of you want to talk a little bit about what Joint Effort is and how the group got started? Well, we can both talk about <laughs> it from our different perspectives. Um, mm-hmm. um, def- definitely, I can uh, say that Joint Effort is a group that was started in 1979 out of a subcommittee of the BC Federation of Women back in the days when uh, the women's movement was really strong and um, people recognized that women in prison were one of the most isolated groups of women um, and started this group uh, to go in and, you know, break the isolation and link the women's community on the outside with the women's community on the inside. And we maintain that today that our main, um, my main objective going inside is to break the isolation and to connect our communities. It isn't just the community of women inside um, that needs that. It's our, our community on the outside we need to connect with our sisters inside who have, um, you know, been taken from us um, and, you know, and make those links so that when people are coming back into the community and reconnecting with their families and and communities, they, you know, have, uh, you know, ha- you know, are able to do so in a good way and, um, and are, you know, remember that they have that intrinsic value, right? Awesome. Um, Joanne, do you want to add anything about, like, what joint effort is and how you understand that it got started? Um, yes, well, like I said, like Laura explained how it got started. I was introduced to joint effort when I transferred to FBI. We don't have joint effort out east. We have um, different uh, other community um, associations. Um, I was introduced to joint effort when, I, like I said, when I transferred. They were coming into FBI, um, having um, different uh, activity nights. Um, um, for me personally, um, and um, they were a great help. I needed to um, some resources. I needed to some phone numbers that I was not able to get. They were very helpful in that aspect. Um, also, um, uh, great friends. Um, my connections. To, my connection to the outside. I thought they were an, an amazing organization. They give a lot of their time for the women inside, um, and it's all volunteer work. Um, we every two weeks we can't wait for joint effort to come inside. It's a. It's um. It's an attachment that us women inside, um, I'm not going to say all the women inside, but the women that participate to joint effort and me included and all that, um, looking forward to seeing these beautiful faces coming in and um, not feeling judged, um, being helped, um, and you know what, having a normal conversation. So um, when I got out and I guess... One thing to like to another, I guess I joined joint effort, and you know what? I am very proud to be part of this organization, 
and helping out. The, I can't help the women inside, but I do. I do try to do my part on the outside. Like right now, I'm trying to restart the uh, pen pack for the women inside that don't have access to any clothing or anything like that. So it's my way of giving back. And like I said, I love this association and this group. They're beautiful women. So I'm very proud to be part of it. Um, I think you kind of answered my question. It sounds like the structure of the group is that there are there's like a component of it that happens inside the prisons. Um, and I think you guys, mm-hmm. when you talked to Stark Raven, it sounded like it's like workshops and people sometimes come in for one-off workshops on the inside, but there's also space for people to just have conversations and like get to know each other. Um, and then it sounds like there's this outside component too of like people doing advocacy on the outside as well. Do you guys want to talk a little bit more about what other kinds of advocacy happens on the outside? Yeah, well, we all use our um, resources that we have on the outside to, um, you know, help prisoners connect uh, with the community resources and uh, people on the outside that they need to connect with because there's a, there isn't internet, There, of course, there isn't uh, easy phone access and uh, even putting together uh, something like a parole application can be really challenging when you're blinded by those barriers, right? So... Um, uh, you know, for myself, my employment is that I work in a women's um, employment center for women who've experienced violence and abuse. So we have resources here um, and community resources and connections and relationships that I can connect people very, very easily with um, the other, you, you know, with organizations, with employers who are willing to do um, work placements uh, to apply for parole. Um, and, you know, with halfway houses or uh, recovery or treatment uh, centers, whether it's for substance use or trauma. And um, and so, you know, whatever people are needing, I can send that information to them and they can write to the people themselves and make those connections, right? Um, so, you know, I think that's a really important thing about communities taking advocacy into their own hands. Sometimes we don't have like monetary resources or space, but we have resources in our own community and how can we share those? Like what institutions are we connected with and we can use those resources to help marginalized people, right? And then um, the other thing that we do on the outside is education about um, alternatives to prison, right? That's the main thing in terms of our prison abolitionist perspective is, you know, what is the power of the community to have people do their, like the majority of people do their sentences out in the community in halfway houses, in parole programs, um, connecting with POs, as opposed to being completely isolated in prisons, right? So those are some of the things we do on the outside and, and the ways that we do it um, and uh, as well, we connect with um, Prisoner Justice Day Committee and on Prisoner Justice Day, you know, speak and educate about, um, you know, prison support and what the system is up to as witnesses, right? Um, we we also do, um, like we do uh, uh, cultural culture, we do a lot of talks, uh, like we do with your radio interviews, you know, spreading the word about uh, what community involvement um why it's necessary, and, um, you know, explaining also, you know, what women are living on the outside, because people on the, out, uh, people on the outside don't necessarily know 
exactly what's happening within the walls. And, um, well, I, my primary Lord is actually spreading the word of what's happening within the walls, how the women are feeling and how isolated they're feeling and how community is so important, not only when they get out, but a, a lot when they're inside. So, um, so uh, interviews like we're having today um, helps a lot to spread the word. I do a lot of uh, net, uh, networking and social media. I have um, an Instagram account called Life of a Lifer. Um, I spread the word also. Uh, Senator Kim Page publishes a lot of stuff on Facebook and stuff. So I, I just spread that out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I reshare everywhere. So I'm, I'm uh, yeah. I'm like spreading the word. <laughs> cool. That's great. That's actually a great segue into our next question. Um, so Joanne, I'm wondering if you could talk more about what kind of access women have to programming on the inside and if there are any other groups like Joint Effort that exist in the country. And then I'm also wondering if you could talk about what changes you've seen happen within like programming within CSC and what access to it has looked like over time. I started my incarceration in 2010 in Quebec. And in Quebec at the time we had EFRI, they used to be within the walls. They had offices there and they were helping a lot with um, everything like joint efforts to doing, you know, connecting women um, inside with um, necessary uh, things they needed on the outs. Because we don't necessarily have all the phone numbers, we don't have access to internet. Um, it's very complicated to make a phone call. So if you need to access government or anything else like that, it's it's very difficult. So EFAR used to be within the walls in Juliet and used to help us do this and um, a few others. And then I saw it slowly but surely one, uh, so, uh, one group after another just leaving the walls. And not necessarily because uh, they didn't want to be there, but she um, decided that um, the, only per- the only personnel within the walls would be CSC personnel. So all those positions were replaced by CSC personnel. Um, so the only association in Quebec that used to come in in Juliet was EFRI, and they used to come in a few times a week, and some volunteers. Uh, we have nothing compared to joint effort in Quebec at all. So when I got to um, Fraser Valley, I was um, happily impressed, and, and um, when I saw and heard about joint effort, because I'd never seen an association still within the walls like that, so... Um, and now with this new security clearance, while the, uh, the option might be slimmer, again, for associations helping the women inside also, because associations like Joint Effort and EFI um, connect us to the outside, right? Um, once that's done, we have no more connections to the outside other than personnel. And I find that uh, very scary, a very scary thought that when that leaves, and I think I feel... Uh, presently, it's a trend. So um, that's um, pretty much in a nutshell where it's been, where it's going, and where I think it's going to end up. Um, Laura, Joanne just mentioned the changes that CSC is uh, bringing about for security clearances for some volunteers. I'm wondering if you could talk more about what it looks like to go inside prison as a volunteer with joint effort, and if you can talk more about the the changes that CSC has recently been making to this process. Yeah, so we first heard about um, the reliability um, status clearance last summer, and um, and you know, and the changes were coming, and we would have to fill out new forms and go through a new process, including fingerprinting and credit check. 
And when we looked at the forms, they were, you know, asking information about um, contact information, name uh, and phone numbers and emails of uh, past landlords, of people we had lived with, um, of people we were in relationship with, and things like that. Um, and this is the form that staff have to go through when um, they're applying to be personnel or updating their um, or updating their clearance. So um, you know, it's a very rigorous um, process. And then um, and we you know met as a group and we were like. Uh, this, you know, this is not only detrimental to each of us individually. This is detrimental to programs and access for the community. Uh, the more we found out about it, we realized that uh, one on uh, one off clearances that we get for guest um, guest folks who want to come in and do, you know, a taiko workshop or a performance or you know teach salsa or yoga or you know. Um, or anything, you know, that we want to bring a, a community member in one-on-one or for a one-off uh, clearance, that that wouldn't be happening. And as well, um, you know, we would have to divulge all this information and might not get cleared in the end. Um, and, you know, as critics of the institution and of the state's involved, uh, you know, the state's role in incarcerating people, but particularly women, you know, we're, we're also concerned about, um, you know, having privacy and having, um, you know, the, you know, our right uh, to free speech um, that this doesn't impinge on, right? And so we, yeah, so we started letter writing first to the warden and then to the deputy commissioner of Pacific region and then to the uh, national commissioner um, who's retired on head and um, and to Ralph Goodall, uh, Kim Pate and the standing committee uh, for the Senate uh, Human Rights Committee for the Senate and um, and so the response by uh, the, the Minister of Public Safety and um, Emergency Preparedness Ralph Goodall the, and the two commissioners or thank you for your 40 years of service to your, you know, community members such as Joint Effort are invaluable, but this is the new process and people just have to go through it as, you know, quickly as possible. Well, we were hearing from other groups um, that people were being denied because of their bad credit. And, you know, some of us, are, you know, have been students in the past and have loans um, and, you know, um, and we want to bring in um, you know, uh, other marginalized women, um, you know, who may have, you know, uh, financial barriers and things like that, um, because, you know, they, because of shared experience um, with the women inside. Um, uh, and, uh, and so we didn't want uh, the, you know, the, 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 we didn't want our membership, you know, uh, separated by, by, you know, those people who went through the clearance, you're good, and you can go inside, and those who didn't make it through the clearance to be, you know, eliminated from access. So we've decided to just uh, fight it for as long as we can. And um, yeah. we're connected with uh, the BC Civil Liberties Association um, and uh, putting together um, a, 
letter uh, on uh, from them on our behalf to uh, you know complain about this at once again to the commissioner based on privacy concerns. Uh, Joanne, do you want to add anything? Well, somebody like me who's a, have a life sentence right now, it's impossible to even apply to try in as a volunteer within a, um, a prison institution, a federal institution or a provincial institution. Um, we used to have the possibility that when we got to a full board parole, uh, lifers have been um, accepted within the walls at the institution's discretion. And with this new security clearance, I would never in 100 years pass the security clearance. Don't even need the fingerprints. You already got them. <laughs> right? So for me, it would stop me from going in and trying to help my sisters in there already. I, I mean, it doesn't stop me from doing it on the outs, but I can't go in and help them. And it just stops the whole possibility of doing it. So. So I'm considered yeah. I'm considered a risk within the walls, but I'm not considered a, a risk on the outside of the walls, which I find very weird. You know what? I'm no longer in dangerous society, so I'm out on parole, but um, not enough to go back within the walls. <laughs> yeah, it's very yeah. interesting to me that this is happening under Trudeau when Harper is the one who cut Lifeline. Harper was the one who was making it you know, harder for lifers to go back in and help each other. Um, it's really interesting mm -hmm. to me that, like, this change is happening under Trudeau. Do you guys have thoughts on that? Definitely. Yeah, well, I'm not voting for him anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, you know, there is a schism between the two ministries that once made up Ministry of Justice. Now, one is called the Ministry of Justice and deals with the, um, the sentencing part of the justice system. And the other is um, the Minister of Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness, which deals with uh, CSC and the in incarceration, as well as other things, right? Um, okay. yeah. And and so, you know, uh, you know, you know, there's criticism of it, but the Ministry of Justice is going through this process of community consultation and getting to root causes and and seeming to find alternatives to sentencing in its process, whereas the Ministry of Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness is continuing the and and, uh, and augmenting the, you know, tough on crime um, agenda of Harper, right? So um, I don't know if it's just to say, oh, we're doing these things and, and being able to give lip service to it. But at the same time, as we are, uh, as citizens of Canada, you know, being uh, put on a, a place whether to, you know, be arrested for a pipeline, um, you know, the protesting a pipeline that, um, you know, 70% or more of Canadians don't want, um, you know, we have, you know, um, added security um, and less access to, um, the community has less access to the um, uh, the members of our community who are incarcerated, right? So, um, yeah. There's been a backtrack process since Harper, and I, and, and I agree with Laura with these two ministries, like one back and going forward again, one sort of going backwards. So um, the solution, not a politician, I don't know what the solution is, but the backtracking is still there. There's no movement going forward in trying to um, better the just um, the um, prison system. Um, 
I think it's just getting worse and worse. And um, when it's going to stop, I have no idea. Um, I wish I didn't want to get into politics either because that will be like a two-hour show. But um, we need to we need to find. And you know what? I don't have all the solutions. And if anybody has any um, ideas, you know, shoot them out. Um, brainstorming, I think, is the best way to find solutions. Is what can we do? Like we need to put pressure on these ministries to show them that we have a voice. There is over 14,000 inmates, federal inmates in Canada, right? With friends and family, that's a lot of votes. <laughs> if we can all band together and say, listen, that, that'll make you or that will break you in your next election. So do something. Don't just promise us during your election campaign, but actually do it. We have 14,000 14, votes and we will use them, right? I wish we could find a solution to band together and actually use those votes, right? That's what democracy is all about. And um, you know what? I'm going to keep on brainstorming and getting suggestions, and we've got a year and a half. Um, <laughs> my last question, I'm wondering if you could both talk a bit about what the future looks like for joint effort. Does the group have goals that you would like to see achieved in the near future? And what does the long-term future look like for the group, too? Because I know having long-term goals like prison abolition, thats the, those are some lofty goals. I would love to hear more about where you guys think you're headed as a group. Well, um, for, uh, for instance, my clearance ends um, June 21st. So that's the last time I'll be able to go into the prison for a little while. And so I think our goals as a group, uh, more and more members of ours since last summer have had their um, previous clearance run out. And so... Um, there's very, very few of us left to go into the prison. And so our goals are to do letter writing and remain connected with the women inside and, um, you know, through the inmate committee, through individual prisoners, um, maybe the, the sisterhood as well, and, um, and to educate on the outside and maintain our pressure on the system to go to uh, to revise the policy, it's just policy, it's not law, on this reliability yeah. status for community member volunteers, right? And have something that, of course, addresses the security issues that the prison needs to, but also, you know, allows access um, so that, you know, people can, get, um, you know, not be so, so incredibly isolated. Um, and it's really fun to do the uh, prison education um, and alternatives to prison um, things. We have a lot of community members who are entertainers and poets and um, artists and musicians who really support this work. And, um, and we always learn a lot. So, uh, you know, when we put on a concert or do an education night or, as uh, Wendy says, um, do some brainstorming, right? My, I like, you know what, I can't go in, so my, my ultimate goal, my future goal, is to help uh, like uh, my sisters inside as much as I can on the outs. Um, uh, picked up the pen, uh, the pen pack, so you know what, so they won't be walking in in grays and blues for like uh, a year because they have nobody to help them uh, bring some stuff inside for them. And anything else, that I can do on the outs. Um, I'm working with uh, with Kirsten um, about um, 
post-secondary education within the inside. Uh, right now, I'm actually trying to figure out how I can get a um, computer class, MS computer class within the wall, so girls can learn uh, Microsoft Office and everything. So I'm, I got that trying to work out. So anything I can do on the outs, that's my future with them. Um, that is it for my questions. Do you two have anything that you want to add or anything that I missed? Well, I think, you know, there's a combination of, you know, shaming the system um, and it's, and just keeping in mind that we have power and resources as communities, as people who do brainstorm and come up with, like, really great things when we put our minds together, um, as yeah. people who... Um, you know, can write letters to uh, women, you know, people in prison, uh, whether it's women or men. Um, you can write to an inmate committee and say, hey, I'm looking for a pen pal. And that connection, you know, is going to be a really powerful one. Somebody will write you back. Um, and if you have any access to resources, seeing, hey, how can I connect with prisoners or people coming out of prison, folks in halfway houses, to make it easier for them to access uh, safe and supportive spaces in the community, um, resources, um, supports that, that they're entitled to in the community that they probably don't know about, right? So there's, uh, you know, so much we can do as a community. Um, the prison system as it is, is totally obsolete. Um, our communities, you know, are powerful and really uh, very e efficient when we're working together. And um, and we, you know, just have to highlight, you know, how the system has to change um, to um, to accommodate the things we know about truth and reconciliation and intergenerational abuse and um, and human rights. I mean, women are the one of the fastest growing women inmates is one of the fastest growing population, um, even faster than men and Aboriginal women even more. So um, we're not going on the right direction either, right? And incarceration is not, it's for petty crimes. Like crimes that should not, you shouldn't be put in jail for those types of crimes, right? Um, I was reading the other day, a woman was put in jail, her kids were taken away for, for par or parking tickets. Like seriously, you're taking the kids away from a woman that's a single or a single parent because she's got over $2,000 of parking tickets. Ridiculous. There's other ways of dealing with issues um, instead of breaking up families and, you know, uh, creating crisis. So um, we've got to put that out there. I mean, jail's not, jail might be a solution at, like, at the extreme, but it's not a, a long-term solution. It's, it's creating problems. I did, I did want to say we're talking about brainstorming and everything. Um, I, I have a website. It's a public website uh, on Facebook. It's Joanne, J-O-H-A-N-N-E, Wendy, W-E-N-D-Y, Barito, B-A-R-I-T-E-A-U. It's on Facebook. So if anybody's got ideas or just wants to get in contact with me, go ahead. I'm open. Uh, yeah, and joint effort can be found on the um, prisonjustice.ca site. We have um, contact information there for writing by mail or dropping us an email. That was an interview with Laura and Joanne from the group Joint Effort, a women's prison abolitionist group based in BC. To find out more about the group, you can visit prisonjustice.ca or write to them at P.O. Box 78005, 
on 1755 East Broadway in Vancouver, BC, Coast Salish Territory, V5N5W1. The time is presently 5.42, and you are still listening to the Prison Radio Show here on SKUT, 90.3 FM, 91.7 on cable, and online at skut.ca. Uh, we want to share with you now uh, a call to action from michiganabolition.org. They say that over the past decade, a wave of prison rebellions has swept the United States, increasing in both frequency and intensity. In September 2016, the largest coordinated national prisoner strike occurred in facilities around the country. These rebellions prove time and time again that caging and torturing humans is violence and will be resisted by those locked up by the system. Prisoner resistance demonstrates that instead of solving the crisis of capitalism, prisons themselves are the crisis. So what follows is a press release put out in April 2018 by jailhouse lawyers speak calling for a two-week stretch of protests beginning on August 21st and extending until September 9th, which is the anniversary of both the Attica Prison Rebellion in 1971 and the National Strike in 2016. The author of this release, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, is a national collective of incarcerated people who fight for human rights by providing other incarcerated people with access to legal education, resources, and assistance. The National Call to Action has now been endorsed by the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, as well as various other prisoner advocacy and abolitionist groups around the country. And so people incarcerated in prisons across the United States declare a nationwide strike in response to the riot in Lee Correctional Institution, a maximum security prison in South Carolina. Seven comrades lost their lives during a senseless uprising that could have been avoided had the prison not been so overcrowded from the greed wrought by mass incarceration and a lack of respect for human life that is embedded in our penal ideology. These men and women are demanding humane conditions, access to rehabilitation, sentencing reform, and the end of modern-day slavery. These are the national demands coming from people in federal, immigration, and state prisons. Immediate improvement to the conditions of prisons and prison policies that recognize the humanity of people in prison. An immediate end to prison slavery. All persons imprisoned in any place of detention under United States jurisdiction must be paid the prevailing wage in their state or territory for their labor. The Prison Litigation Reform Act must be rescinded, allowing imprisoned humans a proper channel to address grievances and violations of their rights. The Truth in Sentencing Act and the Sentencing Reform Act must be rescinded so that imprisoned humans have a possibility of rehabilitation and parole. No human shall be sentenced to death by incarceration or serve any sentence without the possibility of parole. An immediate end to the racial overcharging, oversentencing, and parole denials of black and brown humans. Black humans shall no longer be denied parole because of the victim because the victim of the crime was white, which is a particular problem in southern states. An immediate end to racist gang enhancement laws targeting black and brown humans. No imprisoned human shall be denied access to rehabilitation programs at their place of detention because of their label as a violent offender. State prisons must be funded specifically to offer more rehabilitation services. Pell Grants must be reinstated in all U.S. states and territories. The voting rights of all confined citizens serving prison sentences, pretrial detainees, and so-called ex-felons must be counted. Representation is demanded. All voices count. From August 21st to September 9th, 2018, prisoners across the U.S. will strike in the following manner. Work strikes. 
Prisoners will not report to assigned jobs. Each place of detention will determine how long its strike will last. Some of these strikes may translate into a local list of demands designed to improve conditions and reduce harm within the prison. Another type of action will be sit-ins. In certain prisons, people will engage in peaceful sit-in protests. There will be boycotts. All spending should be halted. We ask those outside the walls not to make financial judgments for those inside. Folks on the inside will inform you if they are participating in the boycott. And also, you should expect hunger strikes. People in prison shall refuse to eat. And so again, those are some of the demands uh, released by jailhouse lawyers speak here on the prison radio show on CQT 90.3 FM. Venus Radio presents MTV Night, a video dance party. Join us in a fundraiser for Venus Radio as we dance the night away surrounded by music videos. DJs Magella, Kanhota, and Gaju, and VJed by some very special guests. June 21st at 8 p.m., $10 pay what you can at Casa del Popolo, 4873 Boulevard St. Laurent. Up next, we'll be hearing the first part of some audio from an event that took place in Montreal on the 29th of May. The event was a launch for the film Emergent Visions, No Prisons, which is a 10-minute prison abolitionist science fiction film. The film screening was followed by a discussion on prison abolition, transformative justice, and science fiction. The moderator was Amina Mohammed, a queer Somali Muslim community organizer and educator. Amina talked with Sheena Hosko, a sculptor, anti-prison organizer, and settler living and working in Montreal, and Nasrin Hamida, a Palestinian writer, editor, and curator based here in Montreal. In the first part of the discussion, Amina, Shina, and Nazarin each introduce themselves and talk about what prison abolition means to them. But first, I think maybe we can start with, like, the three of us were brought to this stage and sort of, like, asked to carry on this conversation because we each do work in relation to prison abolition. Um, and so maybe we can start by talking about what we do, and then we can move through, start discussing art and activism. Mm-hmm. But, um, um, my name's Sheena, I've already been introduced. Um, yeah, I guess I wear two hats in relation to um, anti-prison work. The first is as an artist, as a sculptor. Um, I make sculptures, I make work, um, and also maybe expand on that a bit more, uh, that practice um, that I've been doing for almost 20 years now, uh, a bit later in the talk based on questions, but a lot of it has to do with using objects in space to sort of affect the body to have people think about power. Um, and a lot in the last six, six to seven years, it's focused on sites of detention and sort of carceral, carceral geography, I guess you could say, in different ways. Um, the other hat I wear is doing more organizing work that is anonymous and is part of collective structures. I am, I guess you could say I'm a writer and a curator. Um, I also, I feel a little bit strange being here today because I have just recently left a collective after being a part of this prison abolition collective for seven years because of uh, issues around white privilege um, and so I, I can't really go into that right now but I know that for me um, it's something that is 
always on my mind in terms of the different ways as a racialized person, um, how I navigate through those worlds. Um, but I want to say, since I feel like it's unfair because I asked everybody what, how they came to prison abolition and I didn't answer it myself, I will talk about it a little. Um, I came to it intuitively. Um, I was often, uh, in terms of my own, um, how I was thinking and working around issues of settler colonization in Canada and in Palestine, thinking through the ways in which uh, those uh, structures are very much embedded in, um, uh, in infrastructure, in architecture, in archaeology, in engineering, in design, in landscape. And so I really wanted to think through the ways in which uh, uh, colonization actually happens physically, and one of the immediate ways was one of the obvious ways is through the prison system and how the prison system gets built. Um, but not just physically as a building, but I mean like structurally in terms of what happens on the outside in terms of racial violence, in terms of um, um, uh, violence uh, on a broader scale that has a lot to do with um, uh, what it means to live as uh, a, a, yeah, a person who's not white, who's not wealthy, who's not uh, whatever, you can go on and on, that that is very much uh, rooted in the ways in which uh, um, prisons get populated, as we know. So I feel like that, to me, was already an issue I wanted to grapple with, um, but through the ways in which, say, a city is organized, uh, how power relations get or organized in the city itself. Um, how and how these are really um, material. I mean, material in the sense of material forces, that these are uh, happening because of the ways um, um, uh, the police organize themselves and how they survey the city. Um, and that's very much connected to when we go back and we do research, for example, we can see that in, what, in how uh, settlers surveyed land and mapped out land. And, and colonized land. So I feel like this is, I'm speaking in broad terms right now, but this is just wanted to give you an image of, of what that meant for me. Um, and I feel like one of the things that I, is, is very important to consider is that prison abolition and transformative justice specifically comes from uh, uh, black women organizing in the States, for example, so critical resistance. That's you know, Angela Davis, Ruthie Gilmore, all those people, they're the ones who came up with these kinds of definitions that help us understand how to navigate through what, how we can imagine a world without prisons. I follow prison culture on Twitter, and they just tweeted this amazing thing that I feel like we need to keep in mind every time we do talks like this. Uh, questions I regularly ask myself when I'm outraged about injustice. Number one, what resources exist so I can better educate myself? Who's already doing work around this injustice? Do I have the capacity to offer concrete support and help to them? How can I be constructive? And I feel like that's very relevant to the ways in which we want to kind of think about uh, building through what transformative justice is within our own relations. Um, so I have three points of relation towards doing like prison abolition work. Um, I guess like originally been, been politicized, I guess, like, in my lived experience of being the black person in this country. Um, but recently, my younger brother was arrested um, for 
some series stretches, and that sort of like really shook me. And I coincided, luckily, with me also being on EI, so I had a lot of time on my hands to do the majority of a lot of uh, care work for my family in helping them navigate the system and helping them really understand the difference between sort of like criminality and like criminalization and how, how like how that my brother's criminalization was placed onto him um, and sort of like unpacking with my family like prison like the difficulty that black men have in moving around certain urban cities um, and that led to a project that I'm currently working on around uh, criminalization and mass incarceration in uh, Toronto, in specifically Somali communities. Um, I really believe in supporting people that are your people and doing the work that you uh, sort of like believe about uh, doing the work in your own backyard, I think, working from your lens. Um, and in addition to that, I currently got access to a prison and I don't know how, uh, but I passed clearance and I'm working on a theater project in a women's prison. I won't give the details where it's located just because I don't want to get kicked out. But um, yeah, we got access and so now I'm working at a medium maximum minimum security prison with uh, incarcerated women and it's really cool and we Get to do a three-hour project with them every Friday, and um, the intention is to use it as like arts-based therapy, and also a place for folks to just like feel valued. And um, the entire prison system, uh, which I've now been oriented into by going through training, uh, really regards them as like not human. So we're trying to do our best to provide an avenue where they. Do feel valued, um, and so hopefully in August we can build a, a little theater production and do that. Uh, and then, in addition to that, uh, I am doing this project. So those are all of the current works I'm doing around prison abolition. Um, but in the future, I hope to be able to like develop and build resources for my community uh, to better navigate the. So the criminal justice system and to create uh, better resources for folks that are incarcerated and to like, really focus on um, embedding a lot of inclusivity in my community because we really are so it's a Somali community. Uh, we're also Muslim folks and uh, a lot of the times our culture and our religion um, aren't able to make space for certain aspects of uh, or the ways in which uh, marginalization manifests, including like folks that are involved with the criminal justice system and folks that are dealing with substance abuse and mental illness. And so until I think our community deals with our inability to support those folks, we will <laughs> be uh, dealing with or have an ongoing issue with mass incarceration in our communities and high levels of recidivation. So. That was part of a discussion that happened at the film screening of Emergent Visions, No Prisons. 
a prison abolitionist science fiction film that premiered in Montreal on May 29th. Speaking in a discussion after the film were artists and organizers Amina Mohammed, Sheena Hosko, Nazrin Hamada, and uh, we will hear more from them in future episodes of the Prison Radio Show. The time is presently 5.59 p.m., and you've been listening to the Prison Radio Show on CKUT 90.3 FM, 91.7 on cable, and www.ckut.ca. The next episode of Prison Radio Show will air on Friday, June 22nd at 11 a.m., and we're hoping to put together a year in review of the show. If you have any questions on anything that you've heard on today's show, or if you wish to be involved with the show, feel free to contact us at prison at ckut.ca. Formerly incarcerated people are encouraged to participate. Folks can also leave a message on our listener comment line at 514-448-EXTENSION at 514-448-4041, extension 2547. If you're in prison, we encourage you to participate in the show in any way possible. Feel free to write us at The Prison Radio Show, or simply write PRS, care of CKUT, 3647 University Street, Montreal, Quebec, postal code H3A2B3. Thanks for tuning into the Prison Radio Show here on CKUT 90.3 FM. My name is Noah. And my name is Candace. And we've been your host for today. Please stay tuned. Upstage is coming up next. There, 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 is, there is this thing. Do you realize what is... What is, what is what there is this thing. Do you realize... Consciousness is affected. There, 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 is, this, there is this thing on... There is this thing going on. Do you realize our consciousness is affected? There is this thing going on. What is called the news brought to you live. live.